Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, December 19th, 2010. And we're going to start tonight with Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25. And the verse reads, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is ways of death. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is ways of death. So as we always do, I will ask you, what are the questions that we should be asking about that verse? Janine, thank you. What are ways of death? Good question. Because it seems like an odd way to put that. Uh, why doesn't it just say death? Uh, why does it say ways of death? So what are those? And... Uh, why does the first part suggest that whatever is going on in the first part is going to lead to that? Jim, great. Why is there a multiple after the singular? Uh, so we've got a way that seems right to man, but its end is ways of death. Good question. Um, and I might ask, what is that way that seems right to man? So, oh, Janine... Let's see, what are some of the ways that seem right to man? Yes, that end in ways of death. Exactly. What is, what is, this, what is this referring to? Um, okay. So, there's a popular saying today that crops up in a lot of places. And the saying is, follow your heart. Movies glamorize this, songs are written about it and have been for decades. Um, it's touted sometimes as the ultimate test of what you ought to do with your life and your career and your marriage. And in fact, just about everything. Follow your heart. And it's used for just about everything except for brain surgery. When it comes down to brain surgery, people don't usually say to the brain surgeon, well, you know, just follow your heart. Instead, they tend to say things like, uh, does anybody know who the best neurologist is and how soon can I get in to see him? And does he have good credentials? And does he know exactly what he's doing? And so forth. So what's happening in this situation? I will suggest to you that when people say, follow your heart in this day and age, the way they use the term heart, they're really talking about the emotions. Uh, you know, if it feels good, it must be right. Uh, it was interestingly, and I remember being a bit surprised by this, it was Debbie Boone, was the daughter of Pat Boone, the famous actor who was, I believe, a fairly well-known uh, Christian, who made popular the song You Light Up My Life. This is Debbie Boone, his daughter. And that song contained the words, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. So a person has a particular feeling around things in life that says, ah, yeah, this is it. This, this is the person. This is the one I'm meant to be with. Uh, this is the job I'm supposed to have. Uh, this is the car. Uh, this is the house. 
this is whatever it is, it just feels right. So the question is, what's that really based on? And I'll suggest that it's an emotional feeling. The song does not go, it can't be wrong when you've done a complete objective analysis of the situation, considered long-term consequences and the effect on you, society, and anyone else afflicted, and then come to a solution that is best based on all of those factors. That's not the way the lyric reads. And I don't know that any of the famous artists would get very far with a lyric like that. That's not the way the idea goes. It's about the feeling. Okay, it's about the emotion. Now, in these classes, we have shown in many ways how your emotions, or in many of these classes, how your emotions cloud your view of reality. Uh, and that can cause you to make mistakes. Uh, so if a person operates on the basis of this idea, this way that, that seems right, you are going to make mistakes. I mean, mistakes that can potentially lead to your death. Thank you, Jim. I, I appreciate your support of my new, my new approach to the market of pop tunes. So the verse seems to be warning us that we have to be constantly on the lookout for the clever influence of the emotions on our thinking, even when we think we're being rational. Uh, it, it has a way of creeping in in ways that we don't even see. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, in his class this morning, uh, raised you know, the, the possibility of a person who thinks that they're leading a rational life because uh, that's what they think they're supposed to do, and so they're doing things not because they've really reasoned them out, them out, but because, in a sense, they're pretending to do that because they think that's the life they should lead. That's not the approach. Uh, and so the, the emotions can slip in there uh, in a way that we don't even realize. And I will suggest that the most dangerous assumptions that we make in life are the ones that we don't realize that we're making. Uh, similarly, the most dangerous situations in life can be where my emotions are creeping in and having an effect on my thinking and I don't even see that it's happening. So it, it's coming along and there it is and I think I'm you know, doing the right thing, finding the right person or whatever, and the emotions have slipped in there and they are influencing my decision-making process. And so then I end up going down a road that seems right to me, but its end is ways of death. Now, note that it said, did not say its end is death. It said that its end is the ways of death. In other words, it's affecting my thinking so that I'm starting very slowly but surely to operate in accordance with my emotions. It slips in and then it slips in a little more and it slips in a little more. And those emotions are affecting me and they're affecting my decision making. And going down that road or those any of those roads where the emotions are affecting my decision making is 
the ways of death. So Jim, to your point, I'll suggest that the reason for the difference between the singular in the first half and the multiple in the second half is that the singular in the first half is the way that seems right to me is it feels right. You know, it feels good. It feels like the thing I should do. But its end is ways of death. In other words, it's getting me to operate according to my emotions, which will then cause me to go down paths, and there are many possible ones, that can ultimately lead uh, to my death. Okay, let me uh, pause there. And Laurie and Terry, you said, so as you lead your life, this will happen. I will suggest that it will happen if you lead your life on the basis of what feels right emotionally to you. If you use your intellect to analyze situations and make an analysis of uh, the pros and cons and look at the consequences to various people and the consequences to you long term and so forth and make your decision on that basis, then you won't necessarily, you won't you should not end up in, in ways of death because you're, you're operating uh, in accordance with reality or as close as you can get to understanding how that works. But if I'm operating on my feelings, then by definition, I'm going to make some, some bad decisions because my feelings are not necessarily in accordance with reality. Now, uh, Ah, okay, Laurie and Terry, you've said if, if I lead or if I will I follow Hashem's ways, yes. And, and Hashem's way is for us to use our mind. Uh, that is my understanding of the Torah approach to life, that what Hashem wants from us is for us to use uh, our, our mind and figure out what is the best thing to do it, as opposed to me having my feelings or my emotions or my desires lead uh, to that decision. Uh, so it's, it's all about using the mind that God gave us and that that is the path that he wants us to follow. Now we could um, ask the question, you know, it says, the, the verse says, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is ways of death. Yeah, but everybody dies. So, what's that about? And the answer, as I understand it, is yes, everybody does die, but death here means premature death. Or, it also could mean death even though I'm alive. Premature death can happen if I make incorrect decisions that lead me to a premature death. Uh, I go down the road of my uh, desires and I make incorrect decisions that uh, cause me great stress and conflict. That can lead to an early death. I can actually make some just flat-out incorrect decisions um, that, uh, you know, cause me to die. I mean, if I'm standing on a cliff looking out uh, at the Grand Canyon and it's beautiful and I just have this feeling that I should step right out there off the edge of the cliff and, and experience it. Yeah, I will experience it, but it'll be a very short-lived experience. And that feeling uh, will lead to my premature death. So there's that aspect of it. Um, 
where those those uh, incorrect decisions are influencing us. For example, suppose that you've decided to go down the road of of being a motorcycle stunt person. Uh, okay, people do that for a living. And you're trying to do a motorcycle jump over 15 parked semi-trucks. And you're a highly skilled motorcycle rider, and you sit down and you calculate all the physics involved. The length of the trucks, the power of the motorcycle, the weight of the motorcycle plus you, the angle of the takeoff, the ramp, all the force vectors involved, and all that stuff. And you work it out that, yes, if I can reach this speed and, and the bike is capable of that, I can get enough trajectory to get over uh, those 15 park semis. So then you get to the day of the event. And the wind is blowing in a direction or at a magnitude that you hadn't expected. And the objective analysis, all that physics involved in your mind says, don't go. You didn't factor in the wind, the wind's too strong, and it could affect the success of the jump. But instead, you say, ah, you know, the crowd's out there, I just have a feeling it's going to work. I'm going to go for it. Okay? So, that can result in premature death. Uh, that's when you're in trouble, when it's the feeling. Uh, and And... Granted, that's, you know, I'm taking an extreme case of a, of a stunt motorcycle driver, but that kind of thing can operate in all areas of our lives. Uh, so we have to be careful that our decision-making is, is objective and not being influenced. The second way that I can die uh, that can be referred to uh, in the second half with regard to ways of death is even if I don't physically die. We've talked before about how operating in a way that is not in accordance with reality, which is what can happen when you operate according to your emotions, can lead to a miserable life because you're always in conflict. So even if you're physically alive, the emotions can lead you down paths that make your life like a living death uh, because Nothing works out for you the way you want. You can't fulfill your desires. You're always in conflict. You're always under stress. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, it's easy to see what that kind of, of uh, stress can do to a person. We were uh, just talking recently. If you look at pictures of a president, you know, uh, any of the recent presidents, before they go into office and then four years and then eight years later, if they stay in for two terms, just look at the photograph of the president. And you see how much these people age under that amount of stress. So even if I don't physically die, um, then I can end up in a, in a very difficult life and one that seems tantamount to a premature death. So... Again, the verse is teaching us about the insidiousness of the emotions creeping into our decision-making process and how we have to be constantly vigilant uh, to avoid that. Okay, let me pause. Any questions up to this point? Okay, so... I got all the way through that analysis of the verse in preparing for this class, and then I looked at the commentators. 
And they pointed out, to my surprise, that this verse is a repeat of verse 14.12 in Proverbs. And I checked the Hebrew, and it is an exact repeat of chapter 14, verse 12. The same exact words in the Hebrew. And that, of course, then raises the question of why would King Solomon repeat the same thing? I mean, this is a very wise man. He's, you know, writing this book down. Each of these proverbs are talking, pretty, for the most part, about individual cases. Why would he repeat the same verse? The commentators offer a number of different reasons. And the one that made the most sense to me is based on the Malbum. And he ties verse 26, which is the next verse, with verse 25. And that starts to answer the question of why verse 25 is repeated, uh, since here it's tied with the idea that's being given over in verse 26. And the Malbum is saying that the pers pursuing the physical pleasures, which is what he's suggesting is described in verse 25, where it says there is a way that seems right to a man, um, yet its end are ways of death. He's suggesting that what that's saying is pursuing physical pleasures leads to death. Okay, person ends up spending his entire life in the physical world and focused on the physical world. And this is really easy to do. I mean, if we just look at America for a minute and consider the societal pressure that we have in this society to achieve, to get more, to make more, to accumulate more, and so on. It's, it's a constant, constant push. And a person can easily get caught up in the material world in pursuing the physical pleasures to an extreme. There's nothing wrong uh, with legitimate physical pleasure. And it's important to recognize the Torah is not against that. But that's not the end purpose of life. Okay, the, the, the end goal of the Torah, as I understand it, is for people to be involved in the world of ideas, in the world of learning, in the world of growth and character development, and that the physical world is a means to that end. But if you make the physical world your end purpose of life, then you're in constant pursuit of something that will not ultimately satisfy you. And no matter how much you get, it's not enough. Because the physical pleasure, if you think about all the physical pleasures, you know, they're relatively short-lived. Uh, you have a nice meal, okay, it was very nice, but, you know, then well, what's for lunch? Um, uh, and so, and if, if, as we've, you know, probably all seen, you have this thing you want, a physical thing, a new car, new house, new stereo, new flat-screen TV, I don't care what it is, and you're really focused on it. You think, oh, if I could just have that, you know, everything will be great. Life will be terrific. Um, and you, you're so excited about it, and you can't wait, and you save up the money, and you finally get it. And you really do enjoy it for about a week or two. And then it's nice to have, but you get used to it. And then it's like, the, well, then there's the next thing 
that I want. You know, well, I got a flat screen TV, but you know, what about um, uh, high def? What, what about Blu-ray? Uh, shouldn't I get a Blu-ray player? And if I get a Blu-ray player, you know, then I get that. That's really cool. Well, gee, you know, it'd really be nice if I had a surround sound system to go with this. And on and on and on. Uh, Rabbi Chait, I believe, uh, once said, a person is most involved in his most recent physical acquisitions or losses. The things that we lost or the things that we acquired most recently are the ones that we're really focused on. The stuff we wanted like two years ago that we got, eh, that's kind of old hat. So if you go down the road of this is the end purpose of your whole life, then you're just like constantly on this treadmill because you'll get a little bit of satisfaction from something, but it's not going to satisfy the ultimate need in you because that's not the nature of man. Uh, the nature of man is to be involved in the world of ideas and the world of character development and the world of growth. And that's where the real treasure and satisfaction is. And the physical becomes a means to getting to that. So, what does verse 26 say? It says, The soul of a laborer labors for himself when his mouth forces him. The soul of a laborer labors for himself when his mouth forces him. So taking this approach that we just discussed of the Malbums, this verse is a continuation of the thought in the previous verse. In other words, a person keeps toiling and laboring for himself, going after those physical desires because his mouth forces him. His mouth here uh, is referring, as I understand it, to the appetitive, uh, the, the drive for more and better food, you know, the drive for hunger. I, uh, and, and I would assume it's metaphorical for the entire range of physical pleasures. His mouth forces him, he has this desire, uh, he, he labors, so he keeps working because his desire for the physical pleasures keeps forcing him to work even more. And while it seems right in his own mind for him to do this, the end of all this pursuit is ways of death. So the two verses taken together uh, from this standpoint are warning us against becoming overly focused on the pursuit of the physical pleasures and the toil and the labor and the energy necessary to obtain them. Because that eventually results in death. It's not death in the sense of, of it, it's, an, it's a, uh, a dead end. Uh, it, it does not get you something of lasting value. The Torah approach is to recognize that the physical is a means to the real purpose of life, which again is to be involved in the world of ideas and learning. So we enjoy and appreciate the physical pleasures, but the end aim of our result isn't those. It's to have those to be healthy and well so that we can pursue the world of learning and the world of growth. Okay, any questions on the Malbum's approach or those ideas? All right, thank you. In that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 27. And this verse reads, The lawless man digs up evil, 
and on his lips is a kind of searing fire. The lawless man digs up evil, and on his lips is a kind of searing fire. So what do you think? What are the questions around that verse? Okay, Jim, thank you. Why, why does he dig it up? Why, why, why did King Solomon use the term digs up? What does it mean to dig up evil? Um, and Linda, thank you. How can lips be a kind of fire? Uh, Jim, you've suggested that digging up as suggests labor. Okay, good. Uh, and Lori and Terry, thank you. What is a searing fire? When it says a kind of searing fire, well, what is that referring to? Um, and Mona, thank you. How does he dig up evil? And why does he dig up evil? And Janine, why a lawless man? Yeah, what, what is a lawless man? Um, and, and interestingly, Jim, getting to your point about why, dig, why is the verse used the term digs up, why didn't it just say he does evil? Uh, digs up must, must have some uh, meaning there. And then um, all the business about lips and searing fire, we got to figure out how, how that all ties together. Uh, yeah, Jim, yes. What, what kind of searing fire? Uh, and yes, Laurie and Terry, it certainly sounds like he's planning something pretty, pretty bad. So, first, let's take note of something that the Erie points out. Uh, if you can remember from our, uh, our last class as well, the previous four verses uh, in Proverbs, in this chapter, talk about the virtues of pursuing wisdom. And the Erie says that the next four verses talk about various characteristics that are not honorable. So, what's a lawless man? Let's start there. In the Hebrew, lawless is a conjunction of the words without a yoke. So, it refers to someone who doesn't have any fear of Hashem. Or, uh, in in the terms of Proverbs, a fear of consequences. Uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, uh, generally my understanding is that the term fear of Hashem means fear of consequences. In other words, this person isn't afraid of co the consequences of his actions, and he operates as if there's no law in place at all. Now, there are people who step outside of the law all the time, uh, and and they might do it, um, you know, just here. I, I don't mean all the time. I mean, they they step outside of the law here or there. Um, they may do it just one time when it's convenient. Some may do it when other people aren't looking, uh, but they're careful to look good when other people are watching. But that doesn't seem to be what the verse is referring to here. Note that, again, the verse says that the lawless man digs up evil. He sees an opportunity and he actively pursues it. He's digging it up. He's looking for it. 
It's not just an accidental or convenience thing for him. He's on the lookout and will dig it up like a dog digging up a bone. So we're talking about a very, uh, a, a, a person who just seems, to, has the idea that they can operate completely outside of, of the law uh, and of, of, I would guess, organized society. Yes, uh, Laurie and Terry uh, could be a rebel, somebody looking for an opening. They're digging around for it. So it's not like they just accidentally fell into a place where, okay, maybe I'll do this, this thing because I'm tempted. They're looking for it. Now, one translation that I have translates the second half as we've given it. On his lips is a kind of searing fire. And another translation reads, in his lips there is a kind of searing fire. And the art scroll translation reads, as if a fire burns on his lips. So what's the metaphor here? The Vilna Gaon has a very interesting interpretation of this verse that seems to bring all these parts together. He sees this verse as describing the lawless man performing evil in all three areas of human expression. The first one is thought. And this is because he takes this, uh, as I understand it from the verse, because the guy is lawless in the first place. His thoughts had to lead him there. It's like, how does he get to be a lawless guy? It's because of his thoughts. He didn't just stumble into being uh, actively lawless just by accident, and he has no idea how he got there. His thoughts have led him to this particular evil ground. Uh, he has as actively... Uh, I think, pursued this in his mind. So then um, he, he digs up evil. He actively seeks it. So that's the second part. He's got the thoughts that got him into being lawless in the first place. Then he actively is involved in digging up evil. So he's actively seeking it, which shows how he carries out evil through his actions. Okay, and then he has a burning energy to employ evil through speech. So, um, and yes, Mona, I think that's the uh, the art scroll. Uh, there says as if a fire burns on his lips. It's like he's he has this burning necessity, burning energy to employ evil through speech. So the verse seems to be describing the evil man and how that evil manifests itself in all three areas of human endeavor, things that we have control over, our thoughts, our actions, and our speech. And so the lawless person is employing all three of those uh, to his, his evil end. So he is fully engaged uh, in the evil. Uh, and this verse can teach us clues as to what to watch for then in potentially encountering such a person. Because some people will, you know, uh, do something maybe through an action, or maybe you might hear some speech, but uh, here's a person that's involved in all that. 
And Mona, I would go so far as to say it's, it's beyond just lack of self-control in the case of this verse, because this verse seems to be talking about the person who is actively seeking and engaging uh, in that kind of activity. Okay, any questions on this verse? Every one of us, you know, makes mistakes and, uh, uh, and sins and, and so forth, but here, uh, this person is actively going after it, uh, as opposed to, you know, people who, who make mistakes and they realize that, okay, I made a mistake, I'll do repentance, I'll fix it, you know, and go on from there. Uh, and yes, Janine, this, this is describing an evil person. Uh, I mean, we have sort of righteous people, and then we have evil people, and then there are people in between. Uh, and this is describing someone on, you know, the very evil end of the spectrum. And yes, Mona, no morals. Uh, gets to that idea of lawless. They see themselves completely outside, uh, outside the law and the morals and ethics that other people would operate from within. Okay, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 28. And this verse reads, A duplicitous man incites strife, and a complainer separates good friends. A duplicitous man incites strife, and a complainer separates good friends. Now, Art Scroll translates the second half as estranges a ruler. Okay, and this is one way to translate uh, the, the Hebrew. Uh, I could not make... Uh, sense of that meaning of the verse in that way. Uh, and I found the Rabbeinu Yonah's interpretation to be uh, more compelling, so I went with his particular uh, translation and interpretation of the verse. Okay, so what kinds of questions do we have? Jim, is this related to the searing fire? Uh, good question. Uh, Meiri suggested that all four of these verses uh, ha are, are describing traits that are not honorable, so it could be connected to, uh, to that. And let's see if that comes out. That's a good question. Uh, Janine, excellent. What's a duplicitous man? Yeah, we better define what that is. Um, and how is it that he incites strife? Uh, because the first part is staying that like a fact that that's what a duplicitous man does. So how does that exactly work? How does he do that? Even though it seems obvious, um, I might add, uh, what's a complainer? Uh, I mean, we okay, it's someone who complains, uh, but we might want to look a little bit deeper at that and see if there's something there that we can glean. Uh, and how does a person who does that separate good friends. I mean, people complain about stuff all the time, but how does that tie in with separating good friends? Uh, that, that relationship seems a little bit obscure. Uh, and then, what does the first half have to do with the second half at all? Uh, 
So, Lorian Terry, you, you're uh, asking, is he uh, trying, or he's trying to break up um, things and people and uh, uh, the good, the good paths that people are on. Okay, that's good possibility. Uh, let's hold that thought. Um, Janine, yes. How does the second half work? Uh, does the complainer separate two different friends? or separate their friendship with another or others very good very good questions when it says separate good separates good friends is it talking about two people who already know each other or they don't know each other or who who are the good friends here um, okay and uh yes Lorian terry he'd be uh is he doing that for his own ways so let's start with with duplicitous uh, I'm going to suggest that a duplicitous man is one who is deceitful. In other words, he will tell one person one thing and another person another thing, or he'll tell one person something and then not do it. So he can't be trusted. So it's a person, and they're doing that intentionally. It's not like an accident, like, oh, I meant to pick up the dry cleaning for you and I just forgot. Um, it's someone who is purposefully either telling two different people different things for uh, nefarious purposes, for evil reasons, uh, or telling me one thing but doing another because he has some kind of evil design. Uh, that's my understanding of a duplicitous man. We, we uh, generally always use the term duplicitous uh, in, in a negative way. Uh, where there's a negative intent uh, construed. So, uh, and, and I will suggest that people figure this out sooner or later. Uh, they figure out if someone is, is duplicitous. And they get angry with him. They don't like it. Um, it. It's very hard to construct a mountain of lies or a mountain of distrust and not eventually have that mountain of lies or distrust come crashing down on you. Uh, when people find out that, you know, this person told me one thing and did another or uh, whatever, that, uh, that incites strife. People are angry with you. Uh, it's the natural consequence uh, of being duplicitous. Uh, and... And that really should probably come as no surprise in our study of Proverbs because we know there are negative consequences that await someone who operates outside of reality. And when you tell two different people uh, different things uh, with, with a, a negative intent, it's just that. I mean, only one of those things that you said can be true. So mistrust and strife has to be uh, created. And Mona, yeah, a person can go back and forth. Uh, sometimes to start trouble on purpose or because they have some hidden agenda uh, that they're, they're trying to, uh, uh, to make happen. Or as you say, it might be backbiting. It, uh, it's, it's a person who's, who's divided. Uh, in the English, I believe, duplicitous is connected to the word uh, duplicate or, or two, where there's, there's two things going on there. Uh, the person is not unified. Uh, there's there's two different things happening and they're not congruent. So a complainer 
Um, and yes, Lori and Terry, to uh, again, to spread strife or uh, with an evil intent to try to do something to someone uh, with some kind of uh, hidden agenda. Someone who, for example, is, is planning some big fraud scheme to try to cheat people out of money uh, would be telling them one thing but acting a different way. Uh, their intent is not their their end result intent is not to spread strife. Their end result intent is to try to uh, defraud defraud you out of your money. Uh, but they will spread strife in uh, in doing that because people will eventually figure that out. Now a complainer uh, is obviously someone who complains, but what are they what are they really doing there? Uh, they're always finding fault with everything. Okay, nothing's right, and they're never happy. They're never satisfied. There's always something wrong with what everyone is doing. So they don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. They're always complaining about this person, that person, the other person. Um, and and they they just complain. Now, Janine, you've asked why are they like that? Um, that's a good question. Uh, if if we wonder why would somebody always find fault with other people, I guess I could offer a, a possible psychological uh, explanation of that. That if a person uh, feels like uh, they're not accomplishing something or that they don't have a they're not good enough they have a lack of self-esteem one of the ways that a person can deal with that is to make other people wrong to constantly complain about other people because by complaining about them I am avoiding looking at my own stuff and I am focused on what I perceive to be the stuff of other people. Um, and rather than accepting reality, I'm fighting it. So another reason could be, I just don't like what happened. You know, I went to check in for my flight, and the flight was delayed for two hours, and so I start complaining about the airline. Why am I complaining about the airline? Because I didn't like the end result. I wanted that flight to be on time, and my view of uh, the world is that the world ought to operate the way I want it to, and when it doesn't, I'm going to be mad. And one form of expressing that that frustration or that anger is to complain uh, about things. Uh, Mona, you've suggested a person could do that because they're looking uh, to be the center of attention. Yeah, that is a way to get attention sometimes uh, from people, is to, to complain uh, about stuff. Um, and yes, Lori and Terry, not happy with themselves. Um, and Mona, that's an interesting idea you've put out, instant gratification, uh, because there's, there's my emotion, and my emotion, which is upset with reality, wants instant gratification, and so I'm going to turn around and in, uh, to the guy behind me in the airplane line, who I don't even know, and I'm going to say something like, you know, these airlines do this all the time. Because I want some empathy and I want somebody to agree with me. Uh, so yes, I want some instant gratification for my emotion. 
So how does that kind of a person separate good friends? People don't want to hang around him because he finds fault with everybody. I mean, if you've been around someone who is a constant complainer, it gets really old really fast. And, you know, I mean, we all probably complain at one time or another, but if that's all you do, if, if that's your modus operandi, that's the way you operate, you're constantly complaining about everything, people get really tired of that. Uh, yeah, Mona, kvetching. Uh, it, it, it's like, okay, enough already, you know? And so people don't want to be around that kind of a person. So he separates friends. That is, I'm going to suggest, he separates himself from everyone else. So if he's good friends with another person, but he constantly is complaining, that good friend is not going to want to hang around that. They're going to get tired of it, uh, and, and they're going to want to leave. So there's, I'm going to suggest a separation that's going to happen between the complainer and his good friends. Uh, now, in the way that one complains, if it's of a gossipy nature, uh, you know, he could also cause great strife between uh, two other people who happen to be friends with each other uh, by, you know, saying one thing bad to one of them about the other or something like that. So that's, that's also a possibility. Uh, but people generally don't like to hang around someone who's always, always doing that uh, because it just it gets old. So how do the two halves of the verse fit together and what's the overall lesson that, that it's teaching us? I'll submit that the verse is showing us two different ways that a person can create disharmony. One is to be a duplicitous person and act or speak deceitfully so that you cause disharmony amongst the people that you are interacting with uh, because of the things, you know, you're telling one one thing, one another, or doing one thing and saying another, whatever it might be. The other way is to be a complainer, which ultimately results uh, in separating yourself uh, from others, or at least probably good friends. You may end up with a few people around you, uh, you know, who all they want to do is complain too, and they want someone to listen to their complaints. And so there's this sort of symbiotic relationship of complaining back and forth and back and forth. But uh, I wouldn't call that a good friend relationship. Uh, so the, the, the verse is suggesting a couple of different ways that uh, disharmony can be created and also, by contrast, then shows us things that we need to avoid. Uh, when we have the temptation to complain, it, it, the verse causes, can cause us to stop and think, okay, wait a minute, before I utter these words of complaint, why am I complaining and what is it that I'm expecting as a result of this and what's motivating me? to make this complaint, and is that really what I want to do for what I want to achieve in life? Is that really helping me to get to my end purpose or my uh, vision of what I want my life to be like and how I want to interact with other people? And similarly, duplicitousness, that we need to be very sensitive to make sure that we are uh, uh, unified, I guess would be the word, in, 
in ourselves and, and the way we deal with other people. If I tell somebody I'm going to do something, I do it. I'm 100% accountable. I do what I say I'm going to do. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I do what I say and I say what I do uh, so that there's no differentiation between those, which keeps me on a straight path and also helps me avoid inciting strife in the relationships that I have with other people. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, uh, I think we have time for one more verse. Let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 29. And this verse reads, The man of violence entices his companion and leads him on a way that is not good. The man of violence entices his companion and leads him on a way that is not good. So... What do you think there? And Laurie and Terry, let me pick up your comment about a person talks about and complains about something or someone until he talks him into doing something wrong. Yes, that can also happen. That's, that's true. So Jim, why does he entice another? Yeah, why does the man of violence entice his companion? How does that work? Uh, how, how does he go about doing it? Um, and what what's... Uh, Linda, why only a man of violence? Yeah, we'll have to define, too, what is a man of violence. Um, and Jim, thank you. Isn't it obvious that the way isn't good? I mean, that seems pretty obvious. Of course it's not going to be good if it's led by a man of violence. So is that all there is, or is King Solomon telling us something more? Uh, you know, sometimes if it seems ridiculously obvious, then that suggests maybe there's something additional that we're supposed to see there. So let's start by uh, defining violence. Uh, and Janine, you've indicated it seems to imply the importance of keeping good company. Yeah, I think that is a good, a good lesson we can get out of this, and I think it's one we'll, uh, we'll see uh, here as we go further. Going back to violence, I'll suggest that violence is the use of physical force in order to hurt or kill someone where the force is not justified. The use of physical force in order to hurt or kill someone where the force is not justified. So um, we're not talking here about someone who schemes to do evil as we are in some other verses. Here, if we go with the plain meaning of the verse, we're talking about someone who will physically hurt or kill another person in order to get what he wants. Now, how does a man like that entice his companion? And yes, Mona, that's, I think that person would also be fall into the category of lawless, because if they're willing to hurt uh, or kill someone else, that seems to be pretty clearly outside the realm of the, the normal social structure and rules and laws that we operate within. Good point. So how does a man of violence entice his companion? I will suggest that it's by the fact that the companion sees that the man of violence gets what he wants. 
and generally right away, by taking a shortcut. The man of violence takes what he wants from another person, and he does it by hurting or killing them. So the companion, now remember, the verse says this is a companion, which means that person hangs out with the man of violence. And we've talked before in other verses about how important it is, uh, and Janine, you brought that point up again, about who you hang around with. So the companion is hanging around that person and is being influenced by them, and they see that that person is getting what they want by taking a shortcut in life, and that shortcut is through violence. You know, if I uh, threaten to stab you with a knife, I can get your money, and oh, I didn't have to go work for it. Wasn't that convenient, uh, you know, is the thinking that that person will have. And... So, uh, let me pause, Linda, you said, wouldn't that violate both Jewish law and Noahide law? Yes, it would. Uh, and the man of violence, uh, you know, would not uh, probably take either one of those, I'm guessing, into account. Uh, because they're, uh, you know, operating outside of that framework. Now, I'll suggest further that watching a man of violence can awaken a strong ego drive in a person to see himself as superior to someone else. I mean, if you think about our society, we have a lot of support for the philosophy that might is right. And if you look at the plot of almost every action-adventure movie, the hero ends up in a final fight scene, which gets, as movies seem to come out, more and more spectacular, where he finally vanquishes the bad guy. What's the message? Might is right. Okay? Guys who can beat the stuffing out of the other guys are right, and they are also superior. Now, when a person, and remember, the companion is watching this. Okay, He's watching this man of violence do this to other people. And when a person can apply violence over someone else, there can be a certain sense of superiority over them. You know, I'm tougher than them. They are weaker than me. I can, I can force them to do what I want. And that feeds into a person's ego, making him think that he is different and superior to others. So I'm going to suggest that the man of violence entices his companion through those means. The companion sees what he does and that it's a shortcut, and it also awakens in him that you know ego desire to also be superior and be able to, you know, control somebody else and, and take what I want. And so the man of violence entices his companion down a way that is not good. The companion learns an incorrect way of getting what he wants. And the sheer application of that approach strengthens his ego and makes him feel superior which is not a good way for a man to live. And why isn't it good? Because it's not in line with reality. 
you know, a person uh, should not have a view that, hey, I'm, I'm a superior class or a superior something uh, to this other person. And I'm not talking about, about uh, objective recognition of, you know, this guy can bat better than this guy in a baseball game or, you know, when I'm hiring an employee, this person has better experience and credentials than the other person. We're talking about a, a sense of personal ego superiority, you know, that I can control them because, you know, that's, that's what I do. Laurie and Terry, yeah, he, he's a predator. He, he feels like he's got it over them, and it drives that sense of superiority in him. And so that strengthens the companion sense of that, the companion's incorrect view of reality. And as we've seen in many previous verses, viewing reality incorrectly leads to undesirable consequences. And particularly here, because a person who perpetrates violence on other people is going to make a lot of enemies. And a lot of enemies that have a lot against him. And so he is going to have to constantly be on the lookout for situations where his enemies can hurt him and will try to uh, get vengeance or exact justice uh, from him for what he has done to them, which is also not a way that is good for a man to live. Okay, questions on that verse. Laurie and Terry, you said, um, like the animal kingdom... I'm going to, well, I'm not sure of the intent that you mean, but let me comment on that a little bit. Um, the, the man of violence uh, is not operating in, in accordance with uh, structured ethics and laws of, of society. Uh, in the animal kingdom, where one animal, um, you know, uh, eats another, uh, okay, that's their natural instinctive approach, and that's the natural um, ecological uh, cycle, the system that God created. But God didn't create the system of man with the idea that the natural approach would be for uh, him to, uh, to uh, bring violence upon another uh, human being. But yes, to your point there, uh, from the sense of looking over his back and seeing uh, who's trying to do what to him. Yes, he definitely ends up in that situation. And a person that doesn't operate that way, yeah, they have to be, um, you know, certainly cautious and aware to a particular degree in life uh, of people that might do them harm, but they don't have that whole history of people that they've harmed who are coming after them that they don't have to, as you say, look over their back and see who's trying to do to do what to them? The, the man of righteousness lives a very different kind of life than the man in organized crime uh, who has to constantly be worried about who's going to try to bump him off in the same way that he bumped somebody else off. The man of righteousness isn't worried about that sort of thing. Uh, so, yes, he, he ends up in that situation where he has to, uh, to look over his back uh, as, you know, do certain animals and be constantly alert uh, oh, who's going to try to do him in. So, good point. Any other questions or comments? Okay, and in that case, we'll stop for the evening. Thanks uh, again so much for joining, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Have a great week.